Now, after the prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, after these prophets, the spiritual phenomena of prophecy ceased to be present in Israel. Now, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they prophesied after the Churban Ba'ishwishan, after the destruction of the first temple. <clears throat> that is when they flourished. And after them, prophecy, as we know it, ceased to be a spiritual phenomenon in Israel. The period of prophecy had ended. <clears throat> now, what did this mean? What does it mean when we say that the period of prophecy ended? Well, we can understand this much more profoundly because we understand the concept of the mechanism, or rather we understand the nature of the vision. And we know that the nature of the vision of prophecy was that the prophet was able to see or perceive Oilam Atzilus, even if it went through intermediaries of the other Oilamis. Now, what does exactly mean, what does it mean when we say that prophecy ended? Well, what this meant was that the ability of man to perceive the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, or covered or the glory of God, or rather the ability of the prophet or man to perceive the iris of Ulamatzilus, that is the reality that is present in Ulamatzilus. What we mean is that man's ability to perceive Ulamatzilus ceased altogether. In other words, not only Ulamatzilus became inaccessible, but also Ulambria. What that means is that no more could a man enter these two upper worlds. In other words, Oilem Atzilus, the world of the spheres or the divine emanations, the world of the Shekhinah, the divine presence, and the world that contained the glory of God, his covered, and also Oilem Bria, the world of creation, in other words, the world of the throne, because the Kisei was contained in Oilem Bria, throne of God, this, these both worlds were locked to all people, even if they fulfilled the, the, uh, the right prerequisite conditions, and they engaged in the correct procedure. Only Oilem Yitzira remained open for a person to perceive. In other words, Oilem Yitzira, which is the world of angels, was the only transcendental realm or world that a person could enter once prophecy ceased. In other words, Oilem Atzilus, or the realities of Oilem Atzilus, the Iris of Oilem Atzilus, and the Iris, or the realities of Oilem Bria, both of them remained inaccessible to anybody, even if according to his acts and according to his holiness, he was able to enter these worlds. Even if he was great enough, righteous enough, and holy enough to enter these worlds, and he fulfilled all the procedural conditions, he was denied access. No more could a man enter these worlds. Now, is it just a coincidence that prophecy ceased just about the time of the Churban Ba'ezvishim, the destruction of the first temple? Is that a coincidence, or are they fundamentally related? The answer is that they are fundamentally related. It is no accident. It is not a coincidence. When the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, when the temple was destroyed, that meant that God had removed His Shekhinah, His Divine Presence, 
from men. In other words, that the Shechina ceased to reside amongst Klai Israel, amongst the nation of Israel, and it departed. Now, that event where the Shechina was removed or departed from the midst of Jews, what that meant is that you could not see or perceive the Shechina, even if you had been able to transcend the physical world. In other words, the removal of the Shechina in this world as a result of the Churban Bayesrishan, the destruction of the first temple, that paralleled the exact phenomena of the cessation of prophecy. Because if the Shechina removed itself, if it no more resided among men, if the abode of the Shechina among men terminated, then what that meant is that a man could not perceive the Shechina anymore, even if he undertook the necessary procedural conditions. He could no more see the Shechina. In other words, he could no more look into Ilamatsilus and see the divine image, the divine vision, which is really a perception of the glory of God. Both happened more or less at the same time. That is the significance of the destruction of the first temple. That the Shechina left, and therefore it became impossible for man to perceive the divine glory, even if he knew how to, and even if he was great enough to ascend or transcend into Ilmatsilus. The, the period of prophecy had ended <clears throat> just about the same time that the first temple was destroyed. Just as in the just as in the event that the first temple was destroyed, it meant that the Shechina was removed. So also the perception of the Shechina now also became impossible to observe. Uh, the accessibility of an individual to perceive the divine image also ceased. Now, as I said, only Eilimitzira, which is the world of angels, only that remained open for a person to perceive. Now, we understand with this, what Ruach HaKodesh really is. Ruach HaKodesh, or divine inspiration, is the phenomena whereby a person perceived the awe of Eilim Yitzira, the realities, the realities of Eilim Yitzira, and became attached to spiritual beings residing in that, on that existential plane, namely Eilim Yitzira. Thus we now see what Ruach HaKodesh really is. Prophecy is a state whereby a person can perceive Oilim Atzilus and Oilim Bria. Ruach HaKodesh is a state whereby a person can perceive only Oilim Yitzira by becoming attached to spiritual beings in Oilim Yitzira. Now, after prophecy ceased, only Ruach HaKodesh or divine inspiration was possible to attain. Now, Ruach HaKodesh, in other words, even though prophecy had ended, Ruach HaKodesh was experienced by many great, by many great uh, individuals. For instance, Ruach HaKodesh was experienced by most of the Anshe Knesset Sagdeilo, or the men of the Great Assembly, who wrote much of Ksuvim, or the writings of which uh, forms a part of Tanakh, Terenavim and Ksuvim. Also, there were many Tanoim, individuals who were part of the Mishnah, uh, such as Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yishmuel Koingodl, also Rabbi Nechunya ben Akone, who of course was the author of the famous Kabbalistic text, 
the Bayim, all these people experience rather frequently Ruach HaKodesh. In fact, attaining the level of Ruach HaKodesh is really called Aliyah B'Pardes, as I had mentioned before. This is what transpired by the four who entered Pardes. What they had really achieved was Ruach HaKodesh. So therefore, Oilim Yitzira is what is perceived in Ruach HaKodesh. So it is sort of like a limited view. Prophecy meant you could look into Oilim Atzilus or Oilim Bria, and Ruach HaKodesh meant that you could not transcend further than Oilim Yitzira. You could perceive Oilim Yitzira, you could perceive the beings in Oilim Yitzira. And uh, just to note, Oilim Yitzira, as I said, is the universe or the world or the existential plane of angels and also of the angel Matat. And I don't want to say his full name because that is a holy Shem. Now, this is what happened, therefore. Prophecy ceased shortly after the destruction of the first temple. And of course, this was fundamentally related to the fact that the first temple was destroyed. No more would the Shekhinah abide amongst men, amongst Jews. And of course, paralleling this, or corresponding to this, on a fundamental level, no more could man perceive the Shekhinah. In other words, he no more could perceive the reality of Oilamat Silus, which is where the Shekhinah resided, nor could he perceive the realities of Oilam Bria. He now could only perceive the realities of Oilam Yitzira, the iris of Oilam Yitzira, and this is what is meant by the phenomena of Ruach HaKodesh. Now, but what happened to Ruach HaKodesh? As time went on, the Shemus, the names that one had to meditate on in order to attain the spiritual experience of Ruach HaKodesh, was forgotten. In other words, because people, more and more people, uh, were removed or were distanced from uh, the conditions that one had to fulfill in order to attain Ruach HaKodesh, the individuals who knew how to achieve Ruach HaKodesh and who had attained Ruach HaKodesh, they concealed great deal of the names or the names that one had to meditate upon in order to achieve Ruach HaKodesh. So therefore less and less people actually knew it. Therefore as time went on, these names were really forgotten. In addition, the ashes of the Poradumo, or the red cow, that was necessary to purify one from the Tumma, that spiritual entity called Tumma, which was contracted from an individual who was in contact with a corpse, this also was completely used up. <coughs> this occurred at the time of Rav and Abaya, two famous Amoroim that lived uh, in the later period of uh, when they wrote the, uh, at the writing of the Gemara. The ashes were completely used up, therefore it was f impossible for anyone to fulfill the conditions of Tahara or being free from any and all Tumor. In other words, this Tahara state was, almost, was actually impossible to achieve. In other words, a complete Tahara state, I should say, was impossible to be uh, attained because you could not remove the tumor that was contracted as a result of being in contact with a corpse. You could remove other tumors as a result of going to the mikveh, but you could not remove the tumor uh, that resulted from contact with a the corpse. Therefore, nobody could achieve a Tahara state.
that was necessary in order for the meditative procedure to operate and yield Ruach HaKodesh for the meditator. Because in order to meditate on Shemus, you must, you had to be free from any Tumah <coughs> impurities. Therefore, as a result of that, as a result of this, that the Tahara state, or a true or pure, complete Tahara state was impossible to achieve, and the fact that many people forgot the Shemais itself that was necessary to meditate upon in order to achieve Ruach HaKadosh, the attainment of Ruach HaKadosh also ceased from among Jews. This meant that even though there were people who were certainly were holy enough, and they were great enough spiritually, and they were advanced enough spiritually to receive Ruach HaKadosh, the, however, the concealment of the correct Shemois that one had to meditate upon in order to achieve Ruach Kodesh, and the impossibility of achieving a pure Tahara state, this, these two events negated and barred from now on any individuals from experiencing true Ruach Kodesh. Thus, even the perception of Oilem Yitzirah became impossible for Jews to achieve or for man to achieve. Man therefore ceased from being able to transcend his physical world and perceive the spiritual transcendental universes of Oilem Atsilus, Oilem Brio, and Oilem Yetzira. No more could a man perceive the realities that were present in these worlds. <clears throat> However, there are still spiritual phenomena which are open to men and open to Jews. And these I will discuss in, in, in a short while. But we see in any case that the spiritual phenomena of prophecy, the spiritual phenomena of Ruach HaKodesh, both which meant that man could transcend the perception of the physical world, even though he did not leave his body, but he was able to transcend the physical limitations that the physical world and his body imposed upon him, and therefore he was able to perceive transcendental realms or worlds, these abilities now ceased. And as I had mentioned previously, at the time of the Mashiach, these phenomena will be able to be experienced by all Jews with an enormous amount of frequency. Now, before I, before I actually close, or before I venture to leave the topic of the spiritual phenomena of prophecy in Ruch HaKodesh, I want to discuss the sequence in the technique employed to attain these spiritual states and the path or progression or the stages of spiritual and prophetic enlightenment and ecstasy. This is what I want to do now, and this is a very fascinating area. In other words, what I want to talk about now is when a Novi or somebody, well, let's actually stick with the Novi first. When a Novi wanted to actually experience Navur, how did he go about it? We've covered many areas until now. What meditation is, the concept of Hashpor, the concept of Shemois, names of God, and so on. But, and also what the spiritual phenomena of Navur, prophecy, and Ruch Kodesh, divine inspiration, was really about. But now let's take a look at the, f the idea that when a prophet, a Novi, actually wanted to engage in experiencing this phenomena, how did he go about it? So in that sense, we can look at it from two directions. The first direction, or the first idea is, what was the actual technique that he used 
What did he meditate on in order to go and experience the spiritual phenomena of Navua or prophecy? The second idea is that as a result of the sequence of the technique, there is probably an equal uh, and opposite sequence of spiritual phenomena that he received. What was that all about? So therefore, what I want to discuss is the sequence in the technique employed to attain these spiritual states. And also, to take a look at the path or, to prog or the progression, or the actual stages of the spiritual and prophetic enlightenment that a prophet actually achieved. Now, when an individual who had fulfilled all the necessary conditions that were prerequisite to attainment of Navur and Ruach HaKodesh, and we know what those were, we had mentioned before, the uh, precious state, the Tahara state, the Nikiyu state, and the Kedusha state, when these prerequisites for the attainment of Navur and Ruach HaKodesh were fulfilled, then <clears throat> he began the actual technique or the method that would bring him into a prophetic or spiritual trance. It is important to know that he did not receive or he did not experience or achieve Ruach HaKodesh or prophecy immediately. <clears throat> Rather, there was a specific sequence that he had to comply with in order to reach these elevated states. In other words, he didn't just immediately begin the prophetic experience. He had to comply with specific techniques and this meant that he would reach prophecy in certain stages. What would he do? First, he would remove himself to a room where there were no distractions. There was no noise from the outside environment because this was crucial. An environment that had no noise or any kind of uh, distractions was very important for the Novi to be able to think, meditate, clear his mind. He would then begin to engage in <clears throat> or employ a meditative technique whereby he was able to achieve the intended and desired meditative state in which he would clear his mind from all sensory and bodily sensations, as well as all extraneous mental input, such as thoughts, images, or feelings. This is what he did first. <clears throat> he went into a room, no distractions, and he began to meditate. He employed a meditative technique, and he was able to reach a certain desired meditative state. And we know that a meditative state basically is when an individual has a super-focused awareness or consciousness toward that which he wants to meditate upon, and he was able to clear his mind, remove any kind of sensations or extraneous mental input. Now, at the same time, and as part of the meditative technique, he would attempt to achieve a state of super-focused awareness, which I have said. Now, <clears throat> he would then begin to meditate upon or intensely focus upon a particular Shem. In other words, a particular or specific Shem or name, this would be the object of meditation. The objective of the meditator was to ascend from one world to the next higher one until he reached the highest world. What does that mean? The goal of the meditator or the prophet was to ascend from one world, the lowest, 
to the next higher one, Olam Yitzira, to the next higher one, Olam Bria, until he reached the highest world or that of Olam Atzilus. <clears throat> this was the object of the meditator. But in order to do that, in other words, in order to go from one world to the next, <clears throat> he had to go first from the lowest level or the lowest madrega level of a particular world to the highest level or the highest madrega of that same world because every world had many levels in it. In other words, <clears throat> he had to go from one level to another level to another level until he finished all the levels in that world. Then he can go to the next world and then he would again proceed. One level to the next level to the next level in that world. And then he would be able to go to the next world. So you could see it was a real prophetic journey. <clears throat> Only then <clears throat> could he further proceed into the next world after he had gone through every level or madrega of that particular world. <clears throat> Thus the meditator could not ascend in could not ascend in one spiritual leap from the lowest world of Ulam Asiyah to the highest world of Ulam Atsilus in one instance. He couldn't do that. And a lot of people think that's what prophecy really was. That you could go, you could immediately ascend <clears throat> or experience the iris, the lights or the perceptions of Ulamatsilis, which is the world of the spheres, that is the world in which one perceives God Himself. Rather, we begin to see <clears throat> that he first ascended Ulamasiya, which is this world, going from one level in Ulamasiya, <clears throat> the lowest level, which is this world, to the next higher level of Ulamasiya, until he reached the last level or the end of Ulamasiya. In other words, Ulamasiya itself took time. This world itself took time until he got out of it. Now, Oilamasiya is divided into two major areas. We have what's called the lower world or Oilam Hashofel. That is our world and the sky, the atmosphere. Now the lower world, that's our world, the Oilam Hashofel, it consists of the earth and seven heavens or seven Rikiyam. That's what our world consists of. We are only immediately aware of the earth and one heaven. But the truth is that there are really seven, one on top of the other, and that is what Chazal mean when they refer to the seven heavens, they're really referring to the seven heavens of Ilmasiyah. So therefore, Ilmasiyah is divided into two major uh, areas, the low world or Ilmashofil, which consists of the earth and seven heavens or seven Rikiyam, or Rikiyah is a heaven, or an expanse. And the second major area is called the Ilmaklipris, which is the universe of the Sitra Akhra, or the evil forces, which of course is ruled over by the Satan himself. So in other words, the next major area of Oilam Asiya is called Oilam Haklipas. And uh, the Oilam Haklipas, or the universe of the Sitra Akhra, and all his evil forces or evil agents, that is the next major area of Oilam Asiya. Uh, now, both the lower world, which of course is our world, and the world of the Sitra Akhra comprise therefore Oilam Asiya. Thus the Navi, the Navi thus ascended each level of Oilam Asiya before he could enter and perceive the next world of Oilam Yitzira. Now it is important to remember that the Navi did not actually leave his body in perceiving transcendental worlds. In other words, 
um, he didn't actually terminate or actually leave the body in order to perceive these upper dimensions of reality, but instead he became more steadily aware or more conscious of each transcendental domain while still remaining in the body. He never left the body. He was always in the body. But through meditating, the self, the nefesh alyoino, became aware of different existential states or levels. And that is really the way he proceeded. In other words, the nefesh alyoino or the self, which is connected to every spiritual world, became, a, became aware or conscious of each world or plane that it was connected to. And this happened in a sequential manner. In other words, the self never left the body in prophecy or Ruach HaKodesh, but rather perceived each world that it was connected to. So therefore, we know that the self is connected to many different worlds. And, uh, and what happened was, is that he, his self at different worlds would become aware of different existential states, and that is the way he proceeded. He never went from one world to the next in the sense that he left the body, but the self became aware of different existential states that it was connected to. Now, after ascending all levels of Ulmasiya, in other words, after elevating himself and going up all the different madregas of Ulmasiya, the Novi was now ready to enter Ulm Yitzira, which is the world of the angels. So obviously, it took a good deal of time until he got out of Ulmasiya. Now, at this point, we can ask, but how did a Novi ascend all the levels of Olim Asiya? How does he do it? When we say that he meditates on Hashem, what really happens? Because we now see that he just didn't meditate on Hashem and he sprung into Olim Asiyas. Rather, he had to slowly go from one level to the next until he finished Olim Asiya. So the question then is, how did he ascend all the levels of Olim Asiya? And the answer to that is the following. <clears throat> and this really is the essence of the technique of prophecy. He would meditate, he would focus awareness on a Shem, a name. In other words, <clears throat> he would focus awareness on the sound of a name. He would repeat it. He would focus the awareness on that sound. This is called Hazkoras Shem, the meditation or the, or the uh, pronouncement of a name. He would meditate on that sound of that name. And this name would be the name of a malach, an angel. But what kind of an angel was this? This was an angel who was a guardian or a watcher. He was what's called a Shemir Hashah, the guardian of the gate. Or Shemir Pesach, the guardian of the entrance. He would meditate on the name of this malach <coughs> that was the guardian of a particular level, or Rokia, or Madrega. Now, what would happen after meditating on that name? Well, that malach or angel would allow him entrance to that rokia that he, the malach, was in charge of. So that's how he got into one rokia. Now, the novi, after meditating on the name of the malach of that particular rokia, let's assume he's starting from Ilmasiya. He meditates on the name of the malach of the first rokia. He is he is, uh, he is uh, allowed access to that first Rukia, of first heaven. The Navi <clears throat> would then meditate on the name of a Malach <clears throat> that was in charge of the first Heichal, the first chamber 
of that Rukia, of that particular Rukia that he had gained previous admission to. In other words, each Rukia or each heaven or level of any world had many chambers or hecholos that had to be traversed before he could ascend to the next Rukia or level of a particular world. In other words, not, a, not only did every world consist of many Rukiyas, many heavens or levels, or Madregas, but each level itself or Rukiyah consisted of many Hecholos or chambers. Now obviously each chamber meant a different side or secret. It meant a different perception of reality. Who knows what lies in each chamber of each Rukiyah of each world? And who knows what lies, what enormous spiritual secrets lay in each world. We can only begin to imagine. But he had to traverse all of them. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> thus before each Rukia, or heaven, or each level of Madrega of Oil he would meditate on the Shem of the designated Malach or angel in charge of that Rukia. And when in each Rukia, in other words, when he was... Uh, who, was he, who was permitted to go into the Rukia, then the Navi would meditate on the Shem of the designated Malach in charge of a particular chamber or Echel. The, thus, the Navi would gain entrance to the first Rukia, proceed through every chamber or Echel of that Rukia, then gain entrance to the next Rukia, and proceed through every chamber of that Rukia, until he had passed every Rukia with all the various chambers of that particular world. He was then at that point ready to ascend to the next world of Oil Now with every meditation upon a sound of a Shem, Haskaras Shem, he would also meditate on various tefillahs or prayers at the same time that was appropriate for that particular angel guardian. Now what that means is that besides the Shem that he had to meditate upon, which was, of course, uh, the name of that particular angel who was the guardian of that particular kia or chamber, he also would have to meditate or pronounce various tefillahs, prayers, that were directed to that malach. And so he really had to meditate on both things, the name of the malach and the prayers that were appropriate and directed toward that malach. Now this was true, in other words, that he had to meditate not only on Hashem, but also on the prayers, whether the angel was a guardian of a Rukia or a Hechel. This is what he had to do. So we see, therefore, that the Novi was kept quite busy in order to achieve prophecy. Now, every time a Novi would be at the point of ascending from one Rukia to the next Rukia, or ascending one world to begin the journey through the next world and all its levels and rakiyas, he would have to meditate on the sound of Hashem, which was a particular name of God. And here's where we begin to encounter meditation on the names of God. In other words, if he wanted to ascend from one level to another level, not to go from one chamber to another chamber, but to ascend one level to another level, or to ascend one world to the next, he had to meditate on the name of God, and not only on the name of a Malach. Thus, we see that the Novi accomplished the phenomena of ascension to go up through meditation on the names of God, or what's called Yehudim, unifications or Kavonis, <coughs> intentions.
and he achieved entrance into the various Rikim heavens and Hecholos chambers of any world through meditation on the names of various angels in charge of these places. Thus, meditating on Yehudim, or unifications, or Kavonis, or names of God, gave the Novi the ability to ascend from one Rukia <coughs> to the next Rukia, and also from one world to the next world. And meditating on Shemus of angels <coughs> and various appropriate tefillahs or prayers, this gave the Novi the ability to gain admission or entrance to the various Rikim or heavens and Hecholos or chambers of any given world or Olam. So we see therefore that when the Navi wanted to ascend, he would meditate on a Yichud, a Shem, a name of God. When he got to the level, he would have to meditate on a Shem of the Malach in charge of that level or in charge of that chamber and offer appropriate Tfilis, which is probably Bakoshes, to admit, to permit him to enter, if he wanted to enter the actual level or the actual Hecholos itself. Now, the Novi thus proceeded from one Oilem to Oilem He went from every single Rikia, every Hechol in the Rikia, and he went from Oilem to Oilem Then he went from Oilem to Oilem And then he finally went from Oilem to Oilem Atzilus itself. We see, therefore, that the prof- that the the prophecy was not that prophecy rather was not a spiritual phenomenon that was immediately achieved, even after meditation had begun. He didn't just jump with one spiritual leap into Oilmatzilus, which is the place of the prophetic revelation itself, but rather the Novi journeyed. He proceeded. He progressed. Instead, from one rokia to the next, from one heaven or level to the next. And in that level, from one chamber in the rokia or heaven to the next chamber. And then he went from one world to the next world until he finally experienced the perception of the Shekhinah, or the glory of God, the divine glory, in Oilem Atzilus itself, which is really the essence of the prophetic experience or phenomena. Now, I just want to clarify something before I go further. The concept of worlds, Rakim, or the, the heavens in, in terms of Ulam what it means is, it doesn't mean that at the end of this universe there's another heaven, and at the end of that heaven is another heaven. So if somebody would take a, a rocket ship, uh, and uh, he would be able to, and if he would be able to, you know, go from one end of the universe to the other, he would then enter the next Rakia and so on and so forth. No, that's not what's meant. The Rakim were not um, uh, existential planes that were above us or below us. It wasn't a matter of direction. They were within existential planes. In other words, one existential plane was within another existential plane, which was within another existential plane, and so on. So therefore, it's not a matter of traveling from one plane to another plane. In other words, you couldn't get there physically by going beyond the boundaries of the universe. These Rikim, and the same thing with the Olomus, were existential realms that existed within existential realms that existed further within. So obviously it wasn't so much a matter of direction, 
It was more a matter of going further in and in reality, which we have no comprehension of what really that means. Now, also, it is important to remember that the Novi did not travel in these existential planes. He rather stayed in his body, which is what I mentioned previously, and he perceived the different existential planes. That's what happened. He didn't go into these existential planes, but he was allowed access in terms of his perceptions of these existential planes. Because the Novi himself, his nefesh alyoino is connected to these existential planes. Remember? The five components of the soul is connected to the different oilomas. Therefore, his nefesh alyoino or his self was allowed perception of the different existential planes that he was connected to. So he didn't actually leave his body and travel to these planes. He perceived these planes because his nefesh alyoino, his self, is connected to these various planes. So that's important to mention as, a, uh, as an important idea of clarification. Now, we see also that all prophets experience Ruach HaKodesh, which is the perception of Olam Yitzirah only as one of the necessary stages toward the perception of the Shekhinah Olam Atzilus, which is a true prophetic event. Thus, Ruach HaKodesh was a necessary prerequisite to Nevoah, because one had to go from Olam Yitzirah, from Olam Yitzirah <coughs> to Olam Briah, and only then could he enter Olam Atzilus to perceive the divine glory, or the covet of the Rabbanu Shlom. So in other words, we see that whoever was a prophet automatically achieved Ruach HaKodesh. Because all Ruach HaKodesh is, is a stage before the attainment of prophecy. In other words, you had first to go through Olam Asiyah into Olam Yitzirah. In Olam Yitzirah, that event or that perception or that phenomenon is called Ruach HaKodesh. But in prophecy, you had to go further into Olam Bria and then into Olam Atzilus. So therefore, every prophet automatically was able to experience Ruach HaKodesh, but not vice versa. A person who experienced Ruach HaKodesh was not necessarily able to experience prophecy, because Ruach HaKodesh, <coughs> the attainment of Ruach HaKodesh was a prerequisite for the attainment of prophecy, Nevoah. The attainment of prophecy, um, of course, uh, therefore meant that you had to, of course, be able to have Ruach HaKodesh. If you had merely attained Ruach Kodesh, it did not mean at all that you could also attain uh, prophecy. And that's an important idea to remember. Now, how did a prophet learn all the Yehudim, <clears throat> all these unifications, these names of God, in other words? How did he learn all the Shemus, the names of angels, and the appropriate tefillahs or prayers that he had to know for the proper technique toward achieving prophecy? How did he know all this? How does he know the Yehudim? When did he see the Yehudim? How does he know all the names of the angels? Which Hechel he's going to encounter first? Which angel he's going to encounter first? And all the thousands of thousands of details, obviously, they had to know in order to achieve prophecy. The answer to that is that this came from, what, from a person called a master prophet who taught students. In other words, it came from a master or a teaching prophet to whom he became a diligent and aspiring student. That is the only way you could really achieve prophecy. Thus, the term B'nai Hanavim, which we find, by the way, in Nach, this refers to those students 
who are engaged in learning prophecy. In other words, these students apprenticed themselves toward a mass, to a master prophet, and it is from him that they learned all the necessary information and knowledge that they had to know in order to achieve the states of Ruach HaKodesh and, and uh, Nevoah. Now, besides fulfilling all the necessary prerequisite conditions for prophecy mentioned previously, the precious state, the Nikiu state, the Tahara state, and the Kedusha state, there was also a great body of knowledge that, he had to be ma that had to be mastered by anyone wishing to become a prophet. Thus, the attainment of prophecy we see took years of work, but the rewards were well worth the effort, because as I had said previously, prophecy, without any doubt whatsoever, is the greatest, most sublime experience and spiritual state that can ever be achieved by a human being. The greatest state of well-being, of ecstasy, enlightenment, that a person can achieve is prophecy. Because it meant that you were attached to the Shekhinah. Therefore, you were more perfected because the closer you get to God, the greater perfection you achieve. That meant that you experienced the greatest possible state of sense of self, sense of well-being, ecstasy, enlightenment, exhilaration, whatever you want to call the greatest positive state. Therefore, the rewards were well, well worth the effort, even though it took years. But what the Prophet received in the end was so enormously great that any other experience pales besides that one. And the proof of this, that it was well worth the effort, is that there was over one million prophets at the time that prophecy was found in Israel. Imagine that. Over one million people were able to engage or able to actually experience the prophetic state. That's an enormous amount of people. Could you imagine in our time having one million Rav Moshe Feinsteins? Could you imagine that? It, it, we can't even imagine what kind of world this would be. They had over one million prophets at the time that prophecy uh, was, uh, was able to be experienced in Klai Yisrael. So we see that there were many, many prophets in Klai Yisrael. And it is, of course, to the tragic consequences uh, of the fact that we don't have prophecy. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why there's such great spiritual deterioration. Now, one of the reasons that the various names of God are called Yehudim, why is it that the names of God are called Yehudim? Well, one of the reasons why these various names of God or Shemus of God is called Yehudim or are called Yehudim is because meditating upon them causes one to perceive greater phenomenological oneness or unity among things. Thus, as one progressed from one world to the next, higher one, because he meditated on Yehudim or Shemus or names of God, he perceived much greater unity among the various beings in creation. This was brought about through the names of God. They are therefore called Yehudim or unifications or instruments for establishing Yehud or unity among all creation. That is one of the reasons why names of God are referred to as Yehudim because the names of God were instruments whereby an individual could perceive greater phenomenological unity or oneness that exists among creations. Because we know that the higher you go, the greater is the perception 
that God is the fundamental source of all creation, which automatically means that you are perceiving the fundamental principle of all creation. Therefore, the greater you go, the higher uh, worlds that you achieve, the greater is the perception, the more obvious, more obvious is it to you that God is a source of all creation. And therefore, <clears throat> we call the names of God Yehudim because they are instruments that allow an individual, of course, to achieve <clears throat> uh, the perception of greater unity among all creations. That's why they're called Yehudim. We see so far <clears throat> that a Novi, a prophet, was able to go through a great deal of uh, <clears throat> great deal of uh, effort and labor. <clears throat> he was able to achieve the prophetic states that um, that he was of course intending to achieve to accomplish and as we see that it really required the uh, teachings of a master prophet there was really no way that you could become a prophet unless you apprenticed yourself to a master prophet that was the only way and uh, <clears throat> for instance we find that Elisha of course was the disciple of Elio <clears throat> for the same reason because it was Elio that introduced him or in, intro, uh, uh, inducted him <clears throat> in the actual uh, spiritual phenomena of prophecy and taught him how actually to traverse all the Hecholos and how to go from one Rekia to the next Rekia from one world to the next world and of course that is really how a prophet uh, was able to accomplish what he did he had to have a prophet and it took many years of work. Now, with this understanding of the stages of the prophetic journey, now that we understand exactly what a prophet went through to reach the spiritual states that he achieved, we can now understand some important aspects of what is called the Maisimir Kova, or the vision of the divine chariot of Yechezkel. In other words, what Yechezkel saw. Now, at the banks of the river Kvar, which was in Bovel, Yechezkel Hanovi beheld a prophetic vision of extremely great mystical secrets. We know so far that the essence of prophecy is the perception of the divine glory in Ilmatzilus. That is what prophecy is. If you are not perceiving the divine glory, the covet of the Rabbanu Shalom, or the Shekhinah, or the Or of Olam Atzilus, you are not receiving prophecy. So we know therefore that the essence of prophecy is this perception of the divine glory, which of course was located in Olam Atzilus. Yet in this vision of Yechezkel, we find that this perception of the divine glory, we find it only at the end of the vision. <clears throat> so the question then is, why? What does it mean that Yechezkel was perceiving obviously different entities while he was experiencing prophecy? Now, this is because Yechezkel is perceiving those entities that one perceives while proceeding through the various stages of prophecy. So now we really can understand what was happening in the Mar Yechezkel, in the divine vision of Yechezkel. So, in other words, we see that the vision of Yechezkel, while containing the most profoundness of secrets, is also revealing the actual progression or journey that a prophet undertook 
on his way toward the actual realization of the perception of the divine glory itself. This is also what the Maisim Merkava, what the divine vision of Yecheskel teaches us. Besides all the incredible profound truths and, 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 and uh, mystical ideas that are embedded and contained in the Maisim Merkava. But what I want to point out is the idea that from Yecheskel we learn that the Prophet did not perceive the Shekhinah or the glory of God right away, but rather he took a prophetic journey. There was a certain progression that he had to go through. Therefore, when we analyze the actual text, we see that it says that Yecheskel says that he stood at the river Kvar, and it says that the heaven, and this is a quote, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. Now, what does he mean? By this is meant that he was ascending the various Rikiyam, heavens, and their Hecholois of Olam Asiyah. That's what he means, that the heavens opened, the Rikiyam, the heavens opened, and I saw visions of God. I began to go through the chambers, through the Rikiyam. That's what he means by that statement. <clears throat> this was the beginning of the prophetic journey that Yecheskel undertook in the Maisimer Kova. Now, afterwards, he then says, Then I looked, and behold, a stormy wind was coming from the north, a ruach sa'ora, a stormy wind. A great cloud, an onon godl, with a flaming fire, eish mislakachas, and a brilliant light was surrounding, apparently, this cloud. loi. This is what Yecheskel says. Now, what stage of the prophetic journey is he now expressing? Well, he has gone through the Rikiyam and the Echolos. So that's what he means when he says that he, uh, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. But we know that Olam the next stage of Olam or the next major area, is what's called the Olam the world of the Sitra Akhra. That's what he had to go through next, and that's really what he saw. These four terms, Ruach Sa'ara, Onungodl, Ruach Sa'ara means stormy, uh, stormy wind, Onungodl means great cloud, Eishmis Lakachas, flaming fire, and Vinoigaloi, a brilliant surrounding it. These four terms are in reality the metaphoric expressions for the four worlds or the four klipas of the Sitra Akhra, the Zoyhamo. That's really what they are. This is the exact metaphoric prophetic language that is used to describe the four Olomas of the Sitra Akhra, the four Klippas of the Sitra Akhra. And we know that the four worlds of the Sitra Akhra correspond exactly to the four worlds of the Sitra Dikidusha, the side of holiness. Because we know God created, when He created the world, He created two universes, one corresponding to the other. Zeluma Zeh Osolakim, God made one universe corresponding to the other. In the Sitra de Kedusha, in the world, uh, in the universe of holiness, there are four worlds, Asiya, Yitzira, Brio, and Atsilus. And in the world of the Sitra Akhra, which means the other side, there are also four worlds, exactly corresponding to the four worlds of Kedusha. And they are also Asiya, Yitzira, Brio, and Atsilus. But in the prophetic language, that a prophet sees, 
when he sees them in a vision, remember he perceived visions, he sees the metaphor for these four ulamas. It's called, he sees a, a tremendous stormy wind, he sees a great cloud being borne by that stormy wind, he sees a flaming fire coming out of that cloud, and he sees a brilliant, brilliant light that surrounds this great cloud. In any case, this is what he perceived after the Rikim, uh, after the Rikim of Ulama Siyah. Now, uh, just to give the parallel of the metaphor, the metaphoric expression or the prophetic expression, <coughs> as it parallels the Ulamas, Ruach Saora is the Atsilus of Sitra Akhra, Onum Godel is the Bria, the Ulam Bria of the Sitra Akhra, Eish Mislakachas, <coughs> Flaming Fire, is the Ulam Yitzira of the Sitra Akhra, and Neugaloi is the Ulam of the Sitra Akhra. In any case, that is what he perceived. Now, he then sees, after that, what's called the Chayos and the Efanim, which are the angels of Oilam Yitzira. After he left Oilam Asiya, in other words, first he went through the Kim, and then he went through the Oilam Aklipas, the Oilam of the Sitra Akhra, we next find him describing Oifanim and Chayos, which are angelic beings. And this is because he was on the next level of Oilam Yitzira. That was the next level that he was receiving, uh, prophetic uh, uh, visions that he was receiving. <coughs> Therefore, he describes the Chayas and the Ephanim. <coughs> now, after that, he perceived the divine throne, the Kisei, which is Olimbria, because the divine throne lies in Olimbria. And that was the third part of his prophetic vision. He saw a throne, the likeness of a throne, because he was now standing in Olimbria. Okay? And finally, <coughs> at the end of the prophecy, he sees the essence of the prophetic revelation itself, which is the glory of God. And in his particular prophetic vision, the glory of God resembled the appearance of a man atop the throne. And <coughs> the truth is that the glory of God was depicted as a man because that is the seed or the secret of Adam Kadmon which is something that I hopefully will be getting into later on. So therefore he perceived the glory of God in the semblance of a man because God manifests himself to creation in what's called Adam Kadmon or in the guise of a man. And it is something that we will see later on. But since I mentioned it, I want to just mention that that Shalom, it does not mean that God is a man or that God has any likeness to a man or that God is remotely connected to humanity in any way. God is removed infinitely from all aspects of creation. But when he manifests himself to this world, he must don a guise, because we cannot perceive God as he is Musa in himself. We can only perceive him in a guise that he himself has to adopt, and this guise itself is created. Therefore, the guise that he has adopted is called Adam Kadmoin, or primeval man, or first man, and therefore Yechezkel saw the Rabbani Shlodim in the semblance of a man, because he was looking at the divine glory, of course, which is the essence of the prophetic 
vision itself. But interestingly enough, <clears throat> and of course the Adam Kadmon, the concept of Adam Kadmon, is of course one of the most profoundest mysteries of Kabbalah, of all Kabbalah. Thus we see <clears throat> that the vision of Yechezkel is a perfectly revealing source for the various stages that occurred when a prophet proceeds to meditate and, to, and achieves the spiritual phenomena of prophecy. So therefore, Yechezkel, the Maisim Rekov of Yechezkel, besides revealing great profound truths, also reveals the, the, the concept of the fact that a prophet had to proceed on a journey, on various stages, phases, or steps that he had to embark on in order to achieve prophecy. And this is seen by the Maisim Rekov of Yechezkel, because first he says that he saw uh, the, uh, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God, which of course is Oil Masiyah, the first level. Then he saw the four metaphoric expressions of the four walls of the Sitra Akhra, the Klippus, because that is a second major area of Oil Masiyah. Then it says that he saw Chayas and Afanim, which are angelic beings that inhabit the uh, second world, which is Oil Mitzira. Then he saw the divine throne, which is of course inhabits the world of Bria. And then he saw the glory of God. As, uh, and he saw it, of course, in his vision as a man, a semblance of a man, and that, of course, is the divine glory itself, and that is the essence of the prophecy, uh, uh, all prophecy, and that's really what he sees. In any case, we can, only, we can understand uh, the, uh, the uh, journey that Yechezkel took, or the actual description of Yechezkel in the Maisim Merkava, the vision of the divine chariot, because we now understand that a prophet did not leap, make one spiritual leap from one world all the way to Masiyah, all the way up to Ilm Atzilus, but rather he progressed in certain stages or sequences, and that is the way uh, he proceeded, and that is eventually, of course, he wound up in Ilm Atzilus, which is the entire essence of prophecy. I just want to mention that you'll find that when he describes the Ilm Aklipus, the world of the Sitra Akhra, it's all mentioned in one pasuk, because obviously he gained access to that Oil Masiyah, <clears throat> he gained access to it by mentioning or meditating on the name of a Malach that allowed him to enter the world of the Klippus, and then he just went straight through, because it, 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 the, whole, the entire uh, traverse is included in one pasuk. But when he went through Oil Yitzira, and you find him describing the uh, the uh, the Ifanim and the Chayas and the other angelic beings, you find that he describes that in 20 psukim. So obviously there was an enormous difference in terms of his traversing the Oilam Aklipas, the Oilam of the Sitra Akhra, and the Oilam of Yitzira. So that, that's, that's something that I want to point out. Now, with these ideas, we now conclude our discussion of the nature of prophecy and Ruch Kodesh and the techniques concerning the spiritual experiences of prophecy and Ruch Kodesh. We now conclude that. Now, before I proceed to discuss <clears throat> the phenomena of white magic, which is Shinoi Teva, or the alteration of natural law, and before I proceed to discuss the phenomena of sorcery, or black magic, or Kishif, I want to mention some of the important concepts related to the phenomena of prophetic dreams. And this sort of will be a conclusion to the entire area of prophecy, and uh, divine inspiration. I want to talk about prophetic dreams because it happens to be very much um, related in today's times because we can still have prophetic dreams. So I want to talk about it. 
and also some of the differences between prophetic dreams and the experience of prophecy and, and divine inspiration. Now, as an introduction, the Rabbani Shalom, when he created the world, he divided the day into two parts in terms of the necessary phases of a man's life. The Rabbani felt that these two divisions are necessary in order for a person to properly execute the task for which he was created. One part of the day, one part, of, in other words, the Rabbani divided the day into two parts in terms of the required stages of a man's life. One part of the day is for activity, where a man is involved with the task for which he was created for. And the second part of the day is that, is that a man may rest from the labors of this task. He thus divided the day into two parts. One was for activity and the other is for rest. Now, he divided the day into day and night. The daytime serving the period for man's activity and the nighttime being used for rest. This was the kavono, the rotten of the Rabbani Shlalom. Now, to ensure that a person will actually rest and replenish his energies and resources, he gave all living creatures, creations, a nature causing them to sleep. Thus, when they sleep, their strength is renewed and their energies are restored to enable them to again become involved in their essential task. When a man sleeps, all his mental faculties are dormant. His senses are inoperative and his mind is generally relaxed. This is what occurs when a person sleeps. The only thing that continues to function really is the imagination faculty of the mind. And this continues to conceive and envision various images during the sleep period of man. In other words, basically, the mind shuts off all operations. The person, the individual, uh, does not actively have thoughts or feelings or images which he initiates. His mental faculties are really dormant. They're at rest. They're inoperative. Not only that, but he does not feel any sensations, basically. He's not experiencing any sensory sensations or bodily sensations of which he really is aware of. The only thing that really continues to operate, continues to function, is really the imagination. That faculty of the mind that is capable of producing images. That is the only faculty that remains operative. Now, we see that during sleep, the uh, imagination continues to operate and it produces various images or visions. What are the sources of the images? In other words, the images or the visions that a person has at night during sleep, what determines the images? What are the various factors or sources or origins um, that determine what these images will be? Well, one source that determines the kind of images that arises in the imagination is the daily experiences of man when he is awake. This is called the psychological source or the psychological origin of images or visions that take place at night. Thus, there are images <clears throat> which are evoked to express wish fulfillment. For instance, a person, um, let's say, he hasn't eaten all day. It is very possible that at night he will dream of food because food 
or rather an image of food is one way where the person is able to fulfill the need in a certain interesting way um, of something that he was denied or he didn't have during the day. Now, uh, wish fulfillment of needs or drives is many times, many times determines what a person imagines at night. Also, another idea is what's called conflict resolution. For instance, many times a person has a fantasy of, uh, of uh, let's just say, he has a fantasy of hostility against the parent. So many times, and he has a wish that he can overthrow the parent. Just giving you a psychodynamic. Many times that person will dream of a monster attacking him and then him possibly overthrowing the monster, which is really an image in, in, in a disguised form of this conflict that he has of what to do with the hostility of a parent against the parent and uh, uh, what his fears are, that is that his fears are as a monster coming to get him and what his unconscious wishes, which is to overthrow the authority or to overthrow the father in that sense or the parent. I'm just giving you an, an example of what can determine the images that arise in a person's mind. So we see therefore that there are images which are evoked to express wish, wish fulfillment of needs and drives and also wish fulfillment in terms of conflict resolution. Now also they reflect the interaction that a person has with the physical and social environment in which he resides in. If a person for instance once was very much involved with uh, let's say touring a certain country, it's very possible that at night he will have images of the country which he toured. Again, if a person is very much wrapped up into, very much intensely involved with a certain preoccupation, it is very possible that he will actually have images or visions of that uh, preoccupation during the night. Now, other images or a second source that determines the kind of images that arise in one's imagination may be from biological factors. Various bio biochemical interactions that take place in his body while he sleeps, these actually may determine different kinds of images. That's a second source that determines the kind of images that a person has at night. Images resulting from either psychological origins or biological origins are what is commonly experienced as dreams. That's really what dreams are. Dreams are images or visions which are produced by the imagination while a person is sleeping. And we now see that there are two sources, either a psychological source or psychological origin, either conflict resolution or wish fulfillment, or it could manifest or reflect, that is the dream or the image can manifest or reflect his interactions with the social or physical environment in an intense way. A second source of images could be biochemical. And these sometimes give rise to different images that a person experiences or different dreams that he may have. Now, however, there is a third source or origin that determines the kind of images that arise in the imagination during sleep. And this is images or dreams which are called prophetic dreams. In other words, images or dreams of this kind are really called prophetic dreams and the origin of these prophetic dreams are spiritual in nature. Now, what does that mean? The Rabbanishlam decreed that the connection or the bond that exists between the body and the nefesh al or the self, or the spiritual soul, that this bond should be loosened somewhat when a person sleeps. The Rabbanishlam decreed that. 
Thus, the nefesh al or the higher spiritual soul of a person, which is really the combination of all selves connected to all the worlds, thus the nefesh al which is normally attached to the body, <coughs> and how is it attached? The nefesh of the nefesh al is connected and resides in the liver. The ruach resides in the heart. The neshama in the brain, the chayo, completely surrounds the body from the outside and the Yechida hovers over the head from above. These five spiritual components of the Nefesh al or the higher spiritual soul are in some way connected to the body and they reside in different areas of the body. It does not mean that if an autopsy is performed and you look into these various organs that you will find these spiritual components. Of course not. Again, it means that these spiritual components reside in a different dimension, but they overlap the physical dimension of these various organs. Now, we see that we also see, by the way, that only nefesh, ruach, and ishama actually are connected to organs in the body. The yechida hovers over the head, and the chaya surrounds the body from the outside. They are not really connected to the body per se, but they are in close proximity to the body. Now, the portions of the nefesh el from the ruach and above rise during sleep and sever themselves from the body. This is what is meant by the fact that the Rabbanisham willed that the bond that connects the nefesh el to the body should be loosened. So therefore, the ruach and above, the ruach, the neshama, the chaya and yechida, disconnect and they leave the body, they sever themselves from the body. Only the nefesh of nefesh al remains connected to the guf through the nefesh tachtoina, which is the animal soul, or nefesh bahamas, which I had mentioned previously. The freed portions of the nefesh al or the higher soul, can then move about in the spiritual uh, transcendental worlds, wherever they are allowed to enter. They are permitted to interact or associate or communicate with such spiritual beings as the angels who oversee the natural phenomena, and we will discuss uh, um, these actually a, a little later. In other words, the <clears throat> different components of the nefesh elyoina is allowed to wander freely, or actually in those areas that they can uh, wander, they, they, they cannot have access to all the areas of the different elomas. But they can wander in different ulamas, and they can interact with angels that oversee natural phenomena or teva. They can interact with angels who oversee prophecy and its transmission. They can act, interact also with what's called shadim or demons. They can also interact with these beings also. Now when these higher levels of the self perceive something they can and they are sometimes allowed to transmit these perceptions step by step from the neshama to the ruach to the nefesh to the nefesh tachtoina. Now, interestingly enough, even though a person is aware of these interactions in these spiritual domains, it does not mean that the individual who is sleeping is also aware. Because as I had mentioned previously, the individual is divided into different selves. And one part of me can be aware of certain phenomena, certain realities, but I, myself, is not aware of that reality. And I show that it's the same idea with the unconscious mind, that I could be aware of realities consciously, but the truth is that the self 
in the unconscious is aware realities that I consciously am not aware of. So just like on the psychological and emotional plane, the self <clears throat> is divided and an individual may be not aware of things which he is aware of at a different plane, so also spiritually it is possible for the individual not to be aware of different realities that the other aspects of Nefesh or self are aware of. Therefore, as I said, it is sometimes possible that the Nefesh or the different parts of Nefesh that wander in the spiritual worlds transmit step by step from the Neshama which actually perceives these realities or interactions with spiritual beings. It transmits it step by step to the Ruach, to the Nefesh, and then finally to the Nefesh Tachtoino, which is the mind itself. Now, the imagination subsequently is then stimulated by this spiritual initiation and forms images in its normal, natural manner which express the perceptions and concepts experienced by the Neshama in its interactions with the spiritual worlds. That's what happens. When the actual message or information or knowledge is transmitted to the mind, then it appears in the imagination in a normal fashion, and of course the individual then sees this as a dream. In other words, the imagination is used as the vehicle or the expressive faculty or mode of expression that reveals the information given to the, to the neshama in the higher world. In other words, the concept itself is transmitted through various steps to the imagination and subsequently depicted in the imagination in the normal manner and fashion just like as in any other dream. So a person can dream about something and the ideas that he is dreaming about really has been revealed to him <coughs> from spiritual universes. But these ideas will be expressed to him via his imagination in a normal fashion and it will appear to him as a dream. This is what's called prophetic dreams. A person can thus receive information and knowledge about his future in this manner. In other words, this occurs as a result of the divine decree or that the Rebbe decrees or wills this to happen, that the person should know about his future. The information is revealed to the Neshama by one of God's servants, of whatever type it may be, whatever Malch it may be. It is then transmitted down to the Nefesh of the Nefesh al and subsequently visualized by the imagination in its normal manner, manner either clearly or obscurely as decided by the Rabbanu Shalom. So sometimes a person actually dreams what will happen to him in the future because for whatever reason the Rabbanu Shalom wants that individual to know what his future will be. But how does this person receive it? Well, his neshama receives the information from a spiritual being designated by the Rabbanu Shalom to impart this information that neshama, which is the self of the individual at a different level, then transmits this future, this knowledge about the future, down in stages until through the ruach into the nefesh of the nefesh aloyna, and finally into the nefesh tachtoyna, and it appears in the imagination of the sleeper, and he perceives these ideas in a vision or an image as a dream, and there is really no difference between a dream. And these kind of spiritual revelations in terms of the way he perceives it. The only difference is the source 
of the images that appear in the dream. We see therefore that images or dreams which appear to a person at night may be derived from one of three origins or sources. The first one is that it, the, the images may be generated by psychological factors, wish fulfillment or conflict resolutions, or a person's intensive involvement with day-to-day -day living. A second origin of dreams or images that appear at night is biochemical factors. A third origin is spiritual factors. Dreams or night images can arise, therefore, either from internal stimulation, which is either biochemical origin or psychological factors, or as a result of the stimulation of the neshama according to what it perceives in the spiritual domains. And this subsequently is transmitted, of course, to the imagination, and this knowledge arises to the sleeper in the imagination as a dream. Now, in the latter case, when, uh, an in, uh, when dreams or images arise as a result of the stimulation of the neshama, the initiating agent is always one of the spiritual forces which makes something known to the neshama. The neshama then transmits this information to the imagination as stated previously. Now, it is important to note, however, that the information which is perceived by the neshama may be true or false. Just because it receives information from spiritual planes, the information actually may be false. If the spiritual force which communicates this information to the neshama is on the side of holiness, sitra de kedusha, then the information that the neshama re receives will be true. If, on the other hand, the spiritual force is from the sitra achra, for instance, if it is a shade, a demon, that is revealing this to the neshama, then you should know that the information the neshama receives will be false. Thus, Chazal, when they say in Masech de Brochus that a true dream originates from a malach and a false dream, dream originates from a shade. In other words, that a prophetic dream which originates from the initiation by a spiritual force, if it originates from malach, then the information is true. If it originates from a shade, then the information is false. Now, all images or dreams originating from spiritual origins, however, are always intermingled in some degree with images and dreams that originate from the other two sources, namely psychological and biochemical. <clears throat> Thus we see that dreams contain a certain amount of distortions and confusions, even when the, their origin is a spiritual one. In other words, that since the images which arise in the mind of the sleeper and is seen by the sleeper, that individual, as a dream, since those images can arise from one of three sources, it always happens that the image is produced by more than one source. So therefore, even though the image is being produced or generated by a spiritual factor, in other words, a spiritual force initiated the ideas that this individual is seeing and dreaming about, the, there are also images as part of the dream which are originating from biochemical factors or from psychological factors. So what this person comes out doing is dreaming a hodgepodge 
where you have many different things happening in his dreams, some ideas of the dream reflect the spiritual information, some ideas of the dream reflect biochemical changes, and some ideas of the dream, or rather some images of the dream, reflect psychological factors. And that is important to know, that even when you get spiritual information, assuming it is true and not false, it itself is intermingled with images which are arising from the other two factors. So it is not always easy to figure out what is really happening. But even on this level, there are degrees of clarity, depending on how much the Rabbanishlam wants you to know with clarity what he is telling you. Therefore, Chazal say that it is It is impossible, and this is a translation, it is impossible to have a dream that does not contain worthless information. Therefore, even if you have a dream that is a revelation of a future event or of an important idea, and this was transmitted to you by your nishama, which received it from a spiritual force, it will be intermingled with other ideas which are originating from the other two factors. Therefore, this individual is perceiving a dream or images which are really intermingled and it is really sort of like a confusion. There's an obscurement that has taken place. Therefore, Chazal say that every dream, even those dreams which reveal spiritual information, future events, must contain worthless information. Why? Because the images are also originating from biological or biochemical forces, factors, and also psychological factors. But they all come together in the same dream. You have to sort out what is worthless and what is valuable, what is, of course, uh, um, uh, not important, and of course, what is crucial for you to know. Now, until now, we have discussed the concepts, of course, of prophetic dreams. <clears throat> and we see what a prophetic dream is. That a prophetic dream really employs the imagination as a vehicle, an expressive mode, in order to reveal ideas which are transmitted to the neshama from spiritual forces, which the neshama picks up because it is able to wander freely in the spiritual domains as a result of the fact that this individual is sleeping. It picks up ideas and it reveals this, transmits it down to the nefesh, to the ruach, to the nefesh, and finally to the nefesh tachtoina, and the individual of course sees it as images and as a dream. This is what prophetic dreams are really all about. And we also see that there are other origins of images and that the prophetic dream itself can be intermingled with images based or originating from the other uh, uh, origins. Now. <clears throat> there are, however, certain major differences between a spiritual revelation brought about by prophecy and Ruach HaKodesh and those revelations which are achieved through prophetic dreams. There are major differences. <clears throat> what are the differences? Well, in both phenomena, in the phenomena of prophecy and Ruach HaKodesh on one side and in the phenomena of prophetic uh, dreams on the other side, the imagination faculty of the mind is employed as the vehicle, as the instrument or the expressive mode of the particular revelation given. This is true in both cases, that a person cannot perceive a spiritual truth or concept as it is in the spiritual domain. He must use his imagination, his own physical or mental abilities to perceive 
He's got to use the levush, the instrument or the expression of his imagination to perceive these spiritual truths. This is true in prophecy, in divine inspiration, and also in prophetic dreams. However, there is a big difference between that which a person receives in Nevu and Ruach HaKodesh and that which he receives in prophetic dreams. In Nevu and Ruach HaKodesh, the knowledge revealed is enormously greater in the following areas. In the clarity of the idea, in the comprehension of the idea, in the validity of the idea, in the profundity of the idea, and in the intensity of the idea. What do I mean? The ideas revealed in prophecy in Ruach HaKodesh has enormous clarity. The concept of the idea is clearly revealed. There's no distortions of the idea. In addition, the comprehension of the idea is is far greater. And that is that all the inferences, the implications of this idea that's being revealed to the prophet or the one engaging in Ruach HaKodesh, all the relationships that this idea has to the structure of the ideas from which it emanates is also clearly revealed to the prophet at the time of the prophecy. So the comprehension of the idea between prophecy and Ruach Kodesh is different than that by prophetic dreams. The third idea of validity is also different. That the veracity and the certainty of the idea in prophecy is part and parcel of the prophetic experience itself. Also, the profundity is very different. In prophecy and Ruach HaKodesh, the ideas are basic. They are fundamental concepts. And in prophecy, they are the actual revelation of aspects of the Yichud or the oneness of God Himself. And how that forms the major principles of what we see in creation itself. Not only that, but the intensity of the idea is also different. Because in <coughs> Ruach HaKodesh <coughs> and in prophecy, there is an attachment to the spiritual forces that give rise to Ruach HaKodesh ideas. And there is an attachment to the Shekhinah, of course, that gives rise to the phenomenon of prophecy. And also, one knows and feels this attachment. There is an enormous dvekus in Nevoah and a tremendous dvekus in Ruach HaKodesh. One is not only attached to spiritual beings in Ruach HaKodesh and the Shekhinah in prophecy, but one is experiencing dvekus. One knows that one is attached and is experiencing enormous ecstatic states while this is going on. Now, in prophetic dreams, the reverse is true, or there's a very big difference. In terms of the clarity of the prophetic dreams, we saw that the images of the prophetic, of, of the or rather the spiritual revelation that the neshama re- receives from the spiritual force that gives it to the neshama, it, these images that reveal this idea are intermingled with the images that arise in the imagination from the other sources, the psychological sources and the biochemical sources. Therefore, the images are tremendously distorted and obscured as a result. So therefore, the clarity is completely different in a prophetic dream than the clarity which is achieved in prophecy and divine inspiration, Ruach HaKodesh. In addition, comprehension is different. That in the prophetic uh, dream, you have a single idea 
You do not have all the implications and the inferences that arise from the idea and where it fits in the structure of ideas from which it emanates. This is non-existent in prophetic dreams. Also, validity is very different. That in a prophetic dreams, one is uncertain because it is a dream state. The person is sleeping and he's not certain of the veracity or the validity of the idea that he receives. Whereas in prophecy, <clears throat> of course, part of the prophecy was that a person knew that what he was receiving was true. <clears throat> this is not true in prophetic dreams. And also what caused the validity to uh, be, of course, f far less was the fact that when you saw in your mind or in a dream these ideas, they were intermingled with other images that looked ridiculous. Because we know that the other images, of course, emerged from psychological factors and biochemical factors. Also, the intensity was very different. That in prophetic dreams, one never achieved any attachment with the Shekhinah, which only was true in prophecy. And also, <clears throat> that even in prophetic dreams where the Neshama was sort of attached to a, a spiritual entity, and that's where it picked up the information, the individual who was dreaming and who received these ideas from the images or the dream never experienced the spiritual being which was the source of the, of the information and he certainly did not know that it was a spiritual being that was giving him this information. In addition, in prophecy and Ruach HaKodesh, the Nefesh Elyoyinah never left the body, but rather the Rabbanishlam is Mashpia, his Shechina, or in, term, in the case of prophecy, or he was, the Rabbanishlam is Mashpia, a spiritual being in the case of Ruach HaKodesh, to actually become attached to the nefesh of Elyoyna of that person as a result of the employment of the meditative technique. Whereas in prophecy it was very different. I should say in prophetic dreams it was very different. The spiritual components or the parts of the nefesh Elyoyna actually left the body to wander in the spiritual world purely as a result of the natural condition of sleep, not as a result of the meditative technique. <clears throat> And also, in other words, so we see two differences. That in prophecy in Ruach HaKodesh, the Nefesh Elyoyna never left the body. And in order to receive prophecy in Ruach HaKodesh, the individual had to engage in a meditative technique, a specific technique designed to induce these spiritual states. Whereas in the prophetic dreams, the Nefesh Elyoyna from Ruach and above actually left the body and it wound in the spiritual worlds and also that it did so as a result of the natural phenomena of sleep. It did not do so as a result of any kind of meditative technique. So we see therefore that the prophetic dream, the revelation of ideas that came through prophetic dreams of course was very different than those ideas that came through prophecy and Ruch HaKodesh. But prophetic dreams are really something that we experience even today. That if the Rabbanishim wants to reveal a person's future, or certain ideas that he wants you to know, he will reveal this to you in a dream by getting a spiritual force to interact with the neshama while it wanders during sleep, and the neshama will transmit the ideas to the ruach, to the nefesh of the nefesh elyoyna, to the nefesh tachtoyna, to the mind, in other words, and this idea will be expressed in the imagination, and the individual will see this in terms of a dream. And when he wakes up, he will remember the dream and sort of know some ideas about his future. 
This ends the conversation or the discussion that we have about prophetic dreams. And uh, this basically ends the entire area of the spiritual phenomena of prophecy, Ruach Kodesh, and prophetic dreams. Before I take leave of the phenomena of prophetic dreams, I wish to mention one further distinction between the revelations experienced in Nuvu and Ruach HaKodesh and those encountered in prophetic dreams. During a true prophetic revelation, the only source of the images in the prophet's imagination faculty of his mind during the prophetic trance state are the divine revelation itself. Images arising from either psychological factors, for instance, wish fulfillment, needs, drives, conflict resolutions, or biochemical factors are shut out, literally forced out of the mind in the same manner as all sensory or bodily sensations and extraneous mental input, for instance, thoughts, feelings, etc. Thus, the prophetic image is just that and only that. In prophetic dreams, however, images reflecting spiritual truths must, must share the imagination faculty with other images arising from other origins, as psychological origins or biochemical origins, etc., thereby increasing the likelihood of distortion and ambiguity.